Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Right, we are here with David Hornick. I've been looking forward to this for weeks because although David and I have known each other for almost a quarter century and we have worked together incredibly closely, spent hours and hours and hours toiling over negotiations and terms and documents and people and opportunities, there are a whole bunch of things that I've never had the chance of asking David. So I don't know how that's the thing. I don't know how you don't know everything about uh, me at this I, point. I know. I'm going to fill in the blanks on this podcast. I couldn't be more excited about it. So we're going to we're going to take a a journey back in time and learn as much as we can about David. And as we've talked about, the the purpose of this podcast is to get behind the people that we're working with, get behind our entrepreneurs, get behind our co-investors, our, our advisors, our partners, our limited partners, and, and understand who they are as people, what has motivated them, what has propelled them in their career, in their lives, in their families. And, and it, it all stems to sort of a common theme that I think the three of us have at Lobby Capital, which is this is a people business. And at the end of the day, our best investments are all about team, 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 maybe some TAM and some team. And so what better way to start the discussion than to sort of understand the team at Lobby Capital and who better to start with than David, who is a force of nature and probably many people that are listening huh. to this podcast know David, but um, we're going to sort they've, of- And they've heard all the stories. They're like, buddy- <laughs> I dare you to find something that Hornick hasn't already said. That is a very, very sort of tempting dare. So I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it chronologically. Let's let's maybe sort of jump way back in time. David, you know, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You grew up in New Hampshire. Well, this is going to be a slow march, buddy. I was born in Concord, Massachusetts. And my dad was a computer scientist. He was at Digital Equipment Corporation in the early days of DEC. And we lived in Massachusetts till DEC got bigger and they started expanding and they decided that they'd move a bunch of people up to New Hampshire. So we headed to New Hampshire. My mother cried. And how far <laughs> we, is that? Like Concord to New Hampshire, is that... Nothing. Just a skip it's over like the border? Or? Eventually, I, I commuted longer than that distance. <laughs> but at the time, it seemed infinite to my mother. My mother had grown up in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which was pretty close to where yeah. we were living in Sudbury, Mass. And New Hampshire to her was the sticks. Like, no one would ever move to New Hampshire. That's a terrible idea. And then it wasn't helpful that when we went looking at homes, at one point, we had to stop the car and wait for the pigs to cross the street. <laughs> and I remember as the pigs across the street, my mother weeping, like, oh my God, it's so terrible. The trafe, the trafe. <laughs> <laughs> 
She was just like, I can't believe you're dragging me to this outback. But it was great. I mean, it was a lovely place to grow up. And uh, I had an older sister and a younger brother. And we marched along in the Hollis area public schools in Hollis, New Hampshire. And I was kind of a loudmouth, as you can imagine. And I was, you know, I just did a bunch of stuff. Yeah. What was David Hornick like as a little kid, the, you know, the second grader? I think pretty much everyone wanted to punch me. <laughs> <laughs> including my mother. <laughs> uh, I was just, you know, I, so I was dyslexic. I was this dyslexic kid. And so I, you know, I had my issues. <laughs> Reading was not a strong suit. Spelling was not a strong suit. But your mom was a force of nature then because she knew you were dyslexic. She caught on to that early and she guided you, right? She did not let you fall behind. Yeah, she sort of powered me through. There was no falling behind. That was not allowed. <laughs> Did she have an education background? Yeah, or? she was a teacher. My dad was a teacher when they started out, and uh, she left teaching to raise three kids. And I think in some regards she was lucky because my sister and my brother were so much better than I am that they that they really created no particular challenges for her. So she was left with really just one problem. There's always <laughs> one child. There's always one kid. So, you know, it was like, all right, we need this one to be able to read. <laughs> yeah, there's the kid that puts all the oxygen in the room, and then the same kid is the one that can suck it all out immediately. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I was just, I was kind of an energetic kid, and I was a performer. I was on stage, and I was a singer, and I was a violinist. I was very much about the stage. If I was always on stage, I was happy. And at the time, I'm sure I thought if I could just be a professional performer, life will be great. Then my voice changed and it was not nearly as good after the fact. And it was like, I guess that's over. It never struck me that being like a chubby little five foot four, you know, guy was going to be somehow a problematic. But no, to me, it was like, oh no, my voice changed. I was going to ask you about the computer music major at Stanford. And we'll get to that in a few, but were the fine arts a part of the Hornick household? Like, how Oh, did, yeah. Big you've been time. creative since day one. Like, Big what, time. What, yeah. I think my family always loved the arts. But mm -hmm. my grandparents, my father's parents, were fanatics. My father's mother was an opera singer. My father's father, mm. while not a musician, was about as big of a classical music lover as existed. And so they had one kid, my dad, and they raised him with you know, basically a love of education and a love mm -hmm. of music, right? He was, a, wow. I suspect, a very good clarinet player. And he spent every summer with his parents all summer in the Berkshires where the, Berkshires. the Boston Symphony summered. So they would go at the beginning of the season and they'd listen to every BSO concert for the summer. And when the Boston mm -hmm. Symphony returned to Boston, my grandparents took their son, Jerry Hornick, and they brought him back to Collingswood, New Jersey. And they reopened their pharmacy and said, hey, anyone need medicine? <laughs> Sorry we weren't around in the summer. We were listening to classical music. In the Berkshires. Yeah. So that was that. And when I was growing up then, we all played instruments. My sister was a singer and a pianist. My brother was a bassoonist. And I was a violinist. And, uh, and then a French horn player, then a bass player. And wow. the family loved music, loved the arts, loved theater. We were not really dance people. I'm probably going to get yelled at by the Hornick family, but we weren't really <laughs> dance people. But everything else we were kind of, you know, fanatical about. And that, that has absolutely gone to me and then gone to my children and gone to my siblings' children for sure. I didn't realize the multitude of instruments. So how did you evolve from violin to sort of wind and then ultimately bass? And I started out as a violinist. I had this kid in my second grade class 
And um, he brought in his violin and played violin. And I went home and said, holy cow, you should have heard this. It was amazing. You know, this kid David plays violin, said, I think I want to play violin. And my mother said, oh, that's so nice. That'd be great. And then the next day I came home and said, oh, did you know that David's mom teaches violin? And my mom said, oh, that's great or whatever. And the next day I came home with her phone number. Hey, here's her phone number. My mother's like, oh, I guess he's serious. (laughs) That's going to be... That tenacity started at a young age. We've seen that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I am the opposite. My family, my dad, no music in the house. In fact, my dad didn't understand why we would want stereos when we were teenagers. (laughs) But my sister picked up the guitar and ended up becoming reasonably proficient so that she ended up teaching guitar in high school to, to cover her weekend expenses and so forth. And I still had no interest until I was studying abroad in Italy for a year. And then after... Finishing school, I ended up backpacking around with a friend of mine, and we found ourselves in the Algarve with a bunch of other kids. It was, you know, a sunset evening, and we're sitting on the beach, and the guy takes out the guitar, plays <laughs> father and son. You know, everybody's melted, and I thought to myself, yeah, I'm going to learn the guitar. That, that's that's going to be I me. I need so, to do that. Yeah. That's harder with the French horn. And then he pulled out the French horn and played. <laughs> right. bloop, 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 bloop. The tuba would even be more impressive. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I started on violin and played violin and turned out that I definitely had, you know, some aptitude and a good ear and so, but I was very bad at practicing. I didn't want to practice. My mother basically had to sit and listen. If she wanted me to practice, she'd be like, oh my God, which must have been absolutely torturous. And when I got to middle school, I wanted to play in the band and I couldn't play violin in the band and town didn't have an orchestra. So I picked up French horn. Why couldn't you play violin in the band? It was in an orchestra. It was just a band. Oh, it was like your uh, typical like school band. Marching so I was band, like, yeah. okay, I better. So I picked up the French horn because I thought it was... It, French horn is an incredible instrument. Mm. Like My favorite instruments are, of course, the most brutal, like oboe, bassoon, French horn, things you can't play without yeah. years of practice. So I was a terrible French horn player. But when I got to high school... I wanted to play in the jazz band and I couldn't play French horn or violin in the jazz band, but they had no one who played bass. So the music teacher's like, David, take this bass home over the summer, learn it because you're our bass player when we come back to school. And I was like, all right, how hard could it be? It's got four strings. They're tuned like a violin and it turns (laughs) out it wasn't that hard. And so I, I started playing bass. And then I would play trumpet in the pep band, and I play like I just wow. was into music. I was loved, loved, loved music. But ironically, when I got to Stanford, to, like oh, ta-da, I'm going to go play. And I had been this very serious violinist and considered even conservatory, which is such a joke in retrospect. Why? Because I was not good enough. I was, you know, I mean, it was <laughs> abundantly clear. I was a fantastic violinist by New Hampshire standards. <laughs> you know, okay. that's also how I got into Stanford. I was, <laughs> I was a fantastic student by New Hampshire standards as well. But I auditioned for the orchestra figuring, of course, that's what I'm going to do. That was the expectation was, oh, I've planned all these years and now I'm going to go play in the orchestra. Won't that be amazing? And then I didn't make it. And it was like, what? What do you mean? Like, I, I came here to be in the orchestra. <laughs> if not the orchestra, what? But the assistant conductor who had the auditions was like, you didn't practice. You know, like, I said, all right, fair point. You know, <laughs> it's a Busted. fair cop, you know. But in retrospect, instead of freaking out, I just said, well, all right, you know, I'll go do other things. I started taking violin lessons, actually, from this amazing violinist and professor at Stanford named Gennady Klayman. He was so great, and it transformed, but I never auditioned again. I just started playing bass in a bunch of pit orchestras and other stuff, and I 
did other things and it never looked back, you know. Any desire to do a rock band? I mean, you had, you had, you know, you <laughs> I had played, I played occasionally. What would happen is that there'd be bands on campus and like they need someone to fill in on bass. And so I would yeah. end up, you know, oh, good. All right. I'll play. And I'd play here and there. So good. Okay. And so then, okay. This is this, we just spun through up to high school and then you, you alluded to Stanford. So this computer music thing is now starting to come into focus. But so you apply to Stanford. Where else did you apply? Like when, when you were thinking of college, you know, you're no. in high school. Oh, sure. You're, you're a great student. Me. I was an okay student. My sister was a great student. My brother was a great student. I was a fine student. I applied to kind of all the places you would anticipate if you were the son of Jewish immigrants who were son of Jewish immigrants or whatever. Like the expectation was that you studied your way out, right? right? I just recently listened to an amazing interview by my grandmother. My mother's mother wow. had done this interview for the Lawrence, Massachusetts Immigration Museum or some such thing. I got to hear her whole story. Her father had trained to be a teacher, but in Russia, because he was Jewish, he couldn't teach at the gymnasium. They're like, no, oh. you, you can't do that because you're a Jew. And eventually he was like, forget it. And he moved over to the States. And then a couple years later, his wife and my grandmother and her brother got to the U.S., came through Ellis Island, blah, blah, blah. And they, they landed in Lawrence, Mass. And it was 100% like, oh, you educate your way out of poverty. And they were never yeah. really impoverished, but they were not well off. My great-grandfather never taught in this country. My grandfather was a lawyer who never practiced law. He could never make it as a lawyer. He ran a little store. But his children, my grandmother, worked as you know the secretary at the temple to put her brother through school. And her brother then went to MIT and then became the head of the Columbia Electrical Engineering Department, right? My that dad came over and his mom and dad were from Germany and Lithuania. And they were escaping the Holocaust. And my grandfather and his sister came over to study pharmacology, I believe, just to get out. And that worked. And then my grandmother was an opera singer, came over. She was studying opera and they met. They had my father and my father again, was like, okay, all hands on deck to make sure that you focus on education. And my dad went to MIT. And um, so when we were growing up, it was like, look, this is all cute, but study hard and get yeah. into a great school. And my sister before me applied, blah, 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 and ended up at Harvard and everybody, you know, triumphant. Oh, you know, right. every Jewish <laughs> parent's dream. High. <laughs> high, high fives. And I had every intention of following her, except for the part where I didn't get in. <laughs> but otherwise, <laughs> Harvard, you missed out. You missed out on some, yeah. on some great computer music <laughs> and a failed audition at the symphony. I promise you, had I auditioned for the symphony at Harvard, I would have not made it at all. <laughs> like that would <laughs> But anyway, I applied to a bunch of great schools. I got rejected by Harvard and Yale, both of which I was really desperate to go to. And in the end, I was deciding between going to Stanford and Brown, both of which just seemed like great fits. I was excited. And I went to visit Brown. I met with the head of the music department. I was chatting with the head of the music department at Brown. He's like, oh, this is so great. We're excited to have you here, David. That's fantastic. I said, great. This is so fun. He said, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm very excited about synthesizers and synthesis and 
electronic music. And he said, oh, that's so great. We have this amazing program. It's wonderful. Uh, he said, where else are you considering? I said, I'm really only deciding between Brown and Stanford. And his face sort of dropped and he said, well, if what you care about is electronic music, Stanford has the best department in the world. A very honest person. It was that amazing. A rare, yeah, that yeah. is. Oh. Amazing guy. And I said, that's incredible. Thank you so much. And as I drove home from that visit, it was like, oh, I guess I'm going to Stanford. No, I didn't intend to be a musician. But music was such a passion for me that the idea that I could go study it was super exciting. And so I went off to Stanford. And that was just lucky. How did you handle in, and sort of what went through your head in terms of, you know, heading across the country? Did you have friends that were all already at Stanford? Had you? No, the only thing that made it you know, a little easier is that my aunt and uncle lived in Palo Alto. My uncle had come out here to work at Lockheed. And so I always knew of Palo Alto. I'm not sure if I had ever visited. I don't think I had ever been. It wasn't the wild, wild west. It was sort of like, oh, there's a university out there. It's great. That sounds fun. But I have to say I'm not really, as you can imagine, even back then, I wasn't really worried about much. <laughs> I was sort of like, oh, great. That'll be fun. Go meet some people. Go take some classes. I'm such an optimist that I've just always assumed it'll work out great. Like what, yep. what could go wrong? <laughs> now, of course, a million yep. things could go wrong, but to my mind, it's like, yeah, what could go wrong? Sounds great. Uh, and, and if it does go wrong, you'll deal with it. It's funny. You were talking about, you know, Harvard. I, so when I was applying to college, I also applied all over the place. And Stanford was the number one place I wanted to go. Not because I had ever visited it. Not that I had ever even really known much about it. But they had an amazing swim team. And I was a swimmer. True. And they were in California, which I assume meant, you know, shorts and flip-flops all the time. And I hated the Chicago weather where I grew up. And, and sadly, I did not get into Stanford, but I was destined to come back out here. And finally, 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 after graduating from undergrad, graduating from law school, starting to work, I found a way to sneak into Palo Alto. So they've yet to kick me out. They've yet to figure <laughs> out that I made it here. But all right. So you made the trek out here. I landed in beautiful Palo Alto weather. And talk about sort of, you know, the first adaptation for me. And I'll, I'll preface this by saying I grew up in Chicago in the North Shore, sleepy suburb relatively closed community, went to Penn. And I remember, you know, moving into my freshman dorm, I had three roommates, two of whom were from New York City, one of whom was from Florida. Hmm. The one from Florida was wearing flip flops and uh, had a big moppy head of hair and a great smile and a super relaxed demeanor. And one of the two New Yorkers had one of those butterfly knives that he was sort of slinging back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at my mom who had dressed me up in the Brooks Brothers preppy button down because she figured I'm going to an Ivy League. I got to look the part. And I think she has characterized that moment as never seeing me have more terror in my eyes. <laughs> but, so it was a culture shock. And then one I ended up loving. But did you feel a culture shock when you landed in Palo Alto and moved in? Not really, but one of the things, I've heard it rumored, so I ended up in this dorm that is the biggest all-freshman dorm at Stanford. It was at the time, and now it's back. It's finally back to being an all-freshman dorm, a dorm called Branner Hall. Stanford people hear this either in one of two camps. They're either like, yeah, Branner, or Branner sucks. Those are the only <laughs> versions in Stanford. It's binary. <laughs> yeah, it's binary, but I was in Branner. So it's this giant dorm, 180 freshmen, and so you can imagine, it's a melting pot of amazing people, and I showed up, and I got in my room, and so the rumor at the time, and I have no idea if this is true, that they basically 
chose roommates by height. So that, you know, me being 5'4 didn't end up with some 6'4 roommate who might push me around or whatever. That's an amazing screen. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true, although picturing across the hall from me was my good friend Steve Boom, who ended up being my law school roommate. And Steve and his two roommates were 6'2", 6'4", whatever, and we over on the other side were, you know, five foot nothing. But anyway, so it wasn't like an intimidating thing. I got in there, and it was like I had two little nerdy roommates, you know, and uh, one was a computer guy, and the other one luckily was a musician, and... Um, you know, I remember debating with this particular guy, Jeff, about who was the best trumpeter alive. Like, that was the kind of argument I was having with my roommate. Yeah. He was not flipping a knife or whatever. He was just like <laughs> a local nerdy guy who's now remains one of my very dear friends, Jeff Alexander. Oh, but, you know, it was just one of those things where it was amazing and instantly clear to me that I had been given a gift. Like, I yeah. had landed in this place. I was surrounded by brilliant people. And I loved it. I loved it so much that I ended up an RA in that same dorm my junior and senior years. So I mm. lived three of my four years in an all-freshman dorm, Love which it. is, a, you know, for many would be absolute torture. For me, it was complete, you know, it was just complete joy. And, and just for giggles, out of that freshman dorm, any of those three years, I believe there's some sort of notable entrepreneurs that emerged. Oh, yeah. Who are some of those people? <laughs> well, in my freshman year, uh, one of our friends was Jerry Yang, who started Yahoo. And then Jerry ended up hiring a bunch of our friends from the same dorm. So the initial COO, Tim Brady, was a buddy of ours from that dorm who went and basically was finishing up B-School and went and wrote the business plan. And Matt Reitmeyer was the first biz dev guy. And uh, Grant Winfrey was one of the early marketing people who had been an RA there. And so... There were a bunch of those folks. When I was running the dorm, the computer coordinator was Steve Jervitson. He was like the guy who would come fix your printer. Uh, who else was that? In my freshman dorm, there was this very, very young, amazing character named John Overdeck. He was just like another one of these people who was just so smart, but really seemed to enjoy his life and enjoy living it. And um, Overdeck ended up being friendly with Jeff Bezos and he helped at Amazon and then he ended up founding one of the biggest hedge funds in the world and yeah. and he's now got this incredible foundation to help with education and so and that's just the people I'm thinking of like Selena Tabakawala and her co-founder, Alib, when they ultimately founded Evite, they met at Branner. Like, they're generations of freshmen who hung out yeah. in Branner and, and started amazing, amazing things. And for those that are listening that don't recognize Selena's name, she is one of our venture partners and a brilliant, brilliant serial entrepreneur and engineering sort of powerhouse. So feel free to look at her bio or... Check I mean, the thing that's amazing about Selena, of course, she is those things, right? She was, I think, the CTO or head of engineering, head of technology for Ticketmaster in Europe in her 20s. Like, she yeah, maybe crazy. was 30. She was the president and CTO of SurveyMonkey. Survey she was Monkey. all these things. But most importantly, she's the loveliest human alive. Yeah. Like, she is just such a lovely, charming, like, incredibly positive Funny, person. Like, like she's yeah. the best. She was not in my freshman dorm. I was sadly older than she, but she's the best. <laughs> 
you know, at Stanford, you eventually, you know, you sort of graduate and you sort of aim your energies eventually towards the law. What influenced that? And as opposed to, you know, Jerry hiring you to come in and do whatever at Yahoo. Yeah, I mean, I always was going to be a lawyer. I was just like an argumentative little Jewish dude. Like, what are you, like, what are you going to go do? I wasn't a swimmer, buddy. You know, I was thinking of politics or working in government. And then I sort of tripped my way into computer music, which I loved. Um, but I was always doing both. And even when I was in classes focused on the psychology of music or, you know, physics of sound or whatever, I was still planning to go to law school. And when you thought of law school, was it sort of the policy side of it? Was it the advocacy side of it? Was it the intellectual curiosity and challenge of it? Once you started in law school, what propelled you forward? What was most interesting in that pursuit? Well, if I were to describe it today, I would tell you it was about the storytelling of the law. But at the time, I had no idea what that meant or, right. or that that was really what it was about. To me, it was about advocacy, and it was about taking good arguments and pulling them together. And I was also very focused on human rights and on trying to make the planet a better place. And so I went into law school intending to be a public defender. Like, I had every expectation that I would be following in the line of lawyers who had used the law to make you know the planet a fairer place. Mm -hmm. uh, that I got wildly sideways in that plan due to my own personal moral failings. But I went in absolutely anticipating With those intentions. That. I immediately joined a group called the Prison Legal Assistance Project, which I ultimately yeah. helped to run, where we would go in and help inmates in arguing disciplinary hearings. I just was very focused on this idea of justice and of fairness. And, but I ended up taking a clinical class where you prepared for that. It was taught by this amazing lawyer named Charles Ogletree, who ended up being one of the big advisors to the Obama administration. And Ogletree was amazing. Like, you couldn't not be inspired by Ogletree. And so by the time you're done with that class, you're like, yep, I'm all in. I'm 100% in. But then I went and spent a semester in court you know, representing folks who had been accused of mostly petty crimes because you don't want to give some numbskull like me anything that would could risk anyone too badly, you know. <laughs> A life imprisonment. And um, I had fun, and I settled everything. I just settled cases left and right. And in the end, the clinical professor who was at the court said, this is great, David. I'm excited for you to be a public defender. And I said, yeah, that's not. It was hard in the sense that I felt the the weight of the humanity, like the challenges that people had faced that led to these crimes. But I also felt the weight of the things they had done. And I also wanted to be in a profession where when I did a good job, it was acknowledged. And that's the moral failing. None of my clients cared about thanking me. That was not high on their list of things. You know, there's something you said, a little thread that I'm going to pull on, which is, you know, you settled a lot of cases and this will kind of lead us to your longtime career in venture. You know, we've worked together a long time. And um, another characteristic about you that I shared with others is you're an ultimate pragmatist. Hmm. I've never seen you burrow in on an issue that's not of the highest materiality, highest import. I've never seen you take an irrational position in a conversation or in a negotiation or sort of in evaluating a deal. And so, you know, it's interesting to hear as you were doing the sort of, you know, petty crime public defender work 
that you sought and were successful in settling because ultimately those are little deals, right? And 100%. and you settle because, you know, frankly, it's probably the most efficient thing you can do to, you know, get it resolved and get it resolved in a fair fashion. You finished law school. You, I forget if you clerked or if you went yeah. to Cravath. No, you clerked, I was basically, right? I was still, I like to say I was in the quest for the golden resume. At some point you realize like your life is not the resume, your life is your life. <laughs> but, you know, I was still chasing the golden resume. And so if you've done well in law school, then you go and clerk for a judge. So I, you know, talk to For the to record, you. I did not go clerk for a judge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, buddy, if you've done well in I law school. I did extern for a long time. Thank you, David. <laughs> I, uh, anyway, I clerked for this judge on the Second Circuit, which was you know, lovely and prestigious. And it was a fun year and a half. Then I went to Cravath, which is this litigation shop that you hire if you really have to win. Again, I was like, okay, if I'm not going to be a public defender, what am I going to do? I guess I'll be a litigator. At least it's still the same set of skills. It's just not really, yeah, I wasn't exactly helping the planet, but I was at least getting to do some storytelling, you know? You were there, what, three years, as I recall? Well, with Cravath and clerking, ended up being three years in total before I moved back to California. So you're at Cravath, and you made this move to California. Maybe just give us a little sneak peek into why back to California. Was it the phenomenal weather? Was it Pam? Oh, by the way, somewhere in the mix, Pamela comes into this, right? Yeah, yes, she did. After my first year of law school, I had the very good fortune. After my first year of law school, I got a summer job at Baker and McKenzie in the Bay Area. I was interested ah. in intellectual property as well. And so I was doing some work in IP at Baker McKenzie. And my mom gets invited by this friend of hers to come to her son's wedding at the Claremont. And I'm out there. So I said, okay, I'll go with you. So I wasn't really invited, but I ended up accompanying my mother because, hey, I had a tux. And it turns out that my now wife got invited to this wedding by the sister of the groom who was like, I want some of my friends at your wedding. (laughs) So she came and inevitably there was that table that always exists at the wedding of random single people. Yeah, Yeah. right. Random single people. Table 31. And uh, sat down at that table and, you know. And you met her at that wedding? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That was good. By the way, the mom of the kid who was getting married is the one who introduced my parents to each other. Wow. So that's kind of weird. But anyway. Yeah. Wow. There's the Hornick romance. It was a shirt, as as we say in Jewish land. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I want to dig into Pamela a little bit, and then we'll come back to the work. Okay, so you, you sit down at this table at a wedding. You're a little bit of a outsider presumably at the wedding big time not a little and you sit next to this cute girl and was it love at first sight i wasn't actually sitting (laughs) next to her she was super cute and i kind of looked across the table and i was you know i was chatting but it was i didn't know these folks and they were friends and but i was there and at one point you know the seat next to Pamela was open and Pamela's like, you come over wow, here Pamela. and sit next to me. And then she will tell you that the thing that won her over is that I gave her my extra, you know, whatever on my plate that she, she was like, Oh great. I'd, you know, she's hungry. I'll eat that. Fine. The fact that I was willing to give up something on my plate for her because she wanted it was like somehow and she's never apparently stopped. She'd, she'd, <laughs> she, apparently she'd only dated complete idiots who were like, that's my hands you off. Have it. I'll stab you with my fork. <laughs> anyway. So we chatted and we danced and actually because it was a wedding that we met at, and because this was this great like production wedding, 
there were videographers at the whole wedding. So I oh, have the wedding video. So good. And so on our 20th anniversary or maybe our 25th anniversary, I digitized the wedding video and I just cut out the bits where we appeared. And you watch it, and it you can see by the There's end of the wedding, we are together. Oh. Anyway, so we we basically were together and dated and whatever that was through law school. And then the July after law school got and married. And lived in New York and then came back out to Palo Alto. Okay, so now we'll get back to yeah. that. You've been bludgeoned at Cravath with amazing experience, but a lot of grueling hours. It was fine. Hours. I liked it, and I worked for an amazingly lovely guy. I worked for this guy, Frank Barron, and Frank Barron was an incredible litigator. He was Legend. he had unimaginable clients and they trusted him and all this stuff, but he was also unimaginably lovely. Like he put up with just ridiculous mm. stuff from me. <laughs> There's something to be said. And I think he was also kind of like, "Oh, Hornick." Like, you know, when you hire someone to work for you at Cravath, you don't expect me. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just don't. It's not what you expect. Uh, but he was very gracious about it nonetheless. <laughs> He called me the AV geek. He was like, oh, Warnick with this technology. <laughs> and I remember one day I was like walking around Cravath whistling because I always whistle. And, so, and some one of my fellow associates was just like, why are you always whistling? And I said, you know, because I'm happy. And they're like, I'll get that off your shoulders. Idiot. idiot. Yeah, shut up. You're such a so we got married, I clerked, I went to Cravath, we had a baby and then a second one. And so we had two little kids. And to a certain degree, I was arguing for a living and then I'd come home and practice. You know, it's, I don't think it's that fun to be married to a litigator. And I more than once, Pam would say, like, we're having a discussion here. We're not litigating, you know. And so finally, I just said, maybe this isn't the right long term thing. And I really at the time thought maybe I should go in-house. I should go be an in-house counsel because that would be interesting and give me the opportunity. My dad had been in tech and I kind of thought that was yeah. a good path. And so I was going to start practicing corporate law at Cravath so that I could at least know something. But again, this guy, Steve, boom, who, who was my buddy, was out working in the Bay Area at this firm called Venture Law Group, which was the rival to the firm you were at at the time, Gunderson Detmer. And he just said to his boss, like, hey, I have this buddy and he's interested in you know, considering leaving and you know, sh should we talk to him even though he's a litigator? And that guy, a guy named Jim Brock, was like, yeah, sure. Have them come out. And they met me and they're kind of like, eh. I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt that. So they, they offered me a job and said, sure, you can come. We'll teach you how to be corporate. And this is 1997, Seven. if I'm, Seven. yeah, that's right. So the Valley is sort of maybe buzzing. not quite as buzzing as it is now, but buzzing. Internet is a yeah. real thing. Lots of investigatory sort of startups around the internet. You got there ahead of me. When did you get to the Bay Area? I moved to the Bay Area in 93. Our firm, we incorporated Netscape and saw sort of from that angle. But, you know, interesting, I pulled up this statistic this morning because I was so curious. Last year, I guess there was $358 billion invested in venture capital. What do you think the amount invested in venture capital was in 1997? 97, uh, billion and a half. No, it was a little more than that, but I think it was eleven or twelve billion dollars. Right. Like I mean, just a, I mean, it's a teeny net orders of magnitude less. less. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 just yeah. amazing. No, the business um, was teeny, right? I mean, the predecessor to August, which is the predecessor to Lobby Capital, was a firm called TVI, and TVI was one of the first really interesting tech venture funds on Sand Hill Road. There were only a handful, right? They're just yeah. the competition. If you were a VC back then as tech emerged, the competition was, was really small. It's it was very different. And it was now. collaborative, right? I mean, yeah, it, it was a collaborative sport back time. then. Yeah. yeah. Now they, and, everybody's and, punching each other in the face, buddy. 
except for Lobby Capital. Because we love we, everyone. We do. We are collaborative investors and we'll always be. That's been our approach. So you, you move to Venture Law Group. You work with Jim Brock. You get involved on Yahoo's account, as I recall. Yep, yep. Actually, the very and, first deal uh, I worked on was the acquisition by Yahoo of a company called ViaWeb. Do you know who started ViaWeb? Mm-mm. Paul Graham. Oh, that's great. So it was the acquisition of Paul's company that was the very first deal I worked on for Yahoo, which is so cool. Very cool. What a brain. What a brilliant guy. And so you were at VLG working with Jim, and then Bob and Jim, Bob is Bob Zip, and Jim Brock tell you that they're leaving the firm. No one had ever left the firm. No partner had ever left the firm. Meanwhile, by the way, you know, six months earlier or something, my friend Steve had left the firm, went off to run business development for Yahoo Europe. He's like, I'm going to Yahoo Europe. So he left. I was like, wait, I came here to work with you. And now he's at Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, he runs Amazon Digital Music, which is awesome. But yeah, Jim Brock and Bob Zip said the unimaginable to the firm that they were leaving. And the firm had been started by a guy who said, I want this place to have zero attrition, which is, of course, an impossibility. But they said, hey, we're leaving. And I grabbed Jim and said, great, where are we going? (laughs) (laughs) And Jim is like, who's we, my friend? I'm like, no, 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 no. I loved working. Dusting off his arm. Let go, let (laughs) go. Literally shaking me off, shaking me (laughs) off, get off. But I loved working with Jim, and I was just thought, great, if you're going somewhere, then I guess I should go there with you. And Jim's like, I can't really talk about it and whatever. But eventually, I caught up with Jim, and he said, well, actually, we're starting this sort of advisory thing, but we're going to become of counsel to a firm called Perkins Coie. It's a big Seattle firm, and they're building out their Bay Area practice. And if you're serious, I'm sure they'd be thrilled to talk to you. And I was like, oh, yeah, totally serious. And I so I started talking with the folks who are running this Bay Area practice there, as of course, Buddy knows, because this is where he and I met. But there were only 10 people in that practice at the time. They had merged with this little 10-person firm, Hosey West Saxon Brelsford. God, and, good memory. Uh, impressive. And, and there was a, a gentleman who had come down from Seattle to usher this new Chuck. little thing. Yeah, Chuck Katz. Who now can tell you, Chuck's an amazing and wonderful guy, but his Just wife, Roberta, is the best. Yes. <laughs> Roberta, yes. Roberta Katz. was, yeah. She was the yeah, she general was the counsel general. of Netscape. She was, yeah. And she was just this incredible force. And now she's yeah. this incredible force at Stanford and Stanford. just also incredibly lovely. But anyway, I go to speak with these folks and they're like, we really want to start a big, interesting Bay Area practice. We don't really have people who've been representing startups, but we're going to do that. And I said, well, if you're serious about it, there are a bunch of things you need to do. And among those, you should have an office in San Francisco and you should, you know, I was just sort of an obnoxious For someone who had been practicing corporate law for, you know, a year and a half, I had a lot of demands. (laughs) And the Perkins Coie folks were like, yeah, we'll do those things. To their credit. Yeah, Yeah. they're like, yeah, we agree. We'll do those things. And I realized that Jim and Bob were really going to go do businessy stuff, and I needed someone who actually knew the law because I didn't. (laughs) And I said, I need someone who's a partner in crime here to go do this thing. And they said... Well, we're talking to this amazing guy, but it's very hush-hush because he's super important and you're not. (laughs) That's basically (laughs) what they said. You know, if word gets out that he's talking to us, it would be bad for him and be harder for us. And But I'll ask him if he's willing to talk to you. 
you were, of course, that guy. What did they say to you on the other end? I've never actually asked that. Yeah, I think I had a similar. So I was, you know, I'd been at Gunderson Detmer and it was a similar situation. There hadn't really been anybody that left there. I was technically a co-founder. There was 13 of us on day one. I was, I think, the second youngest. So not a terribly important part of the co-founding <laughs> team, but nevertheless part of it. And um, a few years later, I'm arguably up for partner and I, in good graces there and starting to ask questions and wasn't getting the clarity of answers that I wanted. So I had called Bob Zip because I was being recruited for a venture fund and for a couple of GC positions. And you can't really talk to your colleagues, right? You have to sort of, so like Bob Zip and I had worked together at our, my prior firm and I called him up and said, what do you think of this general counsel idea or joining this venture fund? And he's like, yeah, nah, pretty interesting, but you know, Perkins Cooley is looking for a partner to sort of open up the emerging company practice in the Bay area. And so I started talking and I, I think my first reaction was, that's not happening. I'm not interested. Yeah, that's cute. That's crazy. Very nice. Right, now back cute. to that Very general cute. counsel <laughs> thing. <laughs> right. And, uh, but you know, to his credit and then ultimately the firm's credit for being phenomenal salespeople three months later, I'm like, let's talk about this. And, but my demand was a similar one, which is, I love the idea of being a co-founder of this new office and this new practice for the firm, but I can't do everything. Like, you know, there's, I, I need someone that, to do the work. I need, <laughs> I need a minion. minion. Where's my minion? Ooh, we have a little man for you. <laughs> no. And so I, in the gym, I think it was Brock. That's like, Hey, listen, you got to talk to this guy, this associate that's been working with me at VLG. He's f- phenomenal. He's just a force of nature and he's hilarious and he's smart and he's energetic. And that was my side of it, which is you got to meet this guy. If you're serious about sort of building a team, this would be the, I mean, I'm yeah. glad that they had done a lot of con- convincing because by the time I called you, it was like, oh yeah, we, we talked for what, a couple hours, I think when we first talked and we, yeah, we talked about the law, but not really. We kind of talked about the fact that we both had little kids and we were both really devoted parents who were trying to figure out how to be good lawyers and be good parents and be whatever. And I remember you said to me, I'm going on a camping trip and when I come back, let's talk again. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And then I thought, I thought he was Jewish. He's going camping. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so many things I've surprised you with. <laughs> so you go off camping and I basically decide, yeah, Do I mean, that. why not build something? That would be fun. And I just assumed you would do it. And you came back and you're like, okay, let's talk about it. I said, well, you have to do it. I don't know if you remember this conversation. Th- <laughs> I said, you have to do it. And you said, well, why do I have to do it? I said, because I already joined. And you're like, why'd you do that? <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about it. I'm like, just do the right thing, buddy. <laughs> you mentioned one thing that I want to get on this. We started the offices. You know, at that point, I had two kids. I think you had two or three at the time. And family was, you know, from day one, it was an important part of the culture that we built at the firm. And I don't take responsibility for that. I, I Maybe I am partially responsible, but it was always front and center with you, your kids, the importance of your kids and your wife and keeping them involved. We knew we were working hard. In fact, we were working 24-7, but I was always impressed with how well you sort of kept the... In fact, we ended up, I don't know if you remember this, but we had these... Friday night movie nights in our big conference room because we had a big projection TV. I think we ordered pizza or some other crappy food and the kids ran around and we watched Little Mermaid or you may remember. <laughs> but but there was always an ethos of our firm was involve the family, involve the kids, have the kids in the office if they need to be in the office. And so now hearing this whole story, it sounds like that came from your mom. Like your mom was, you know, was the nucleus of your upbringing, it sounds like. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it's all about family. In fact, I know you're this way as well, but it is a rare day that either Pamela or I don't speak with one of our four kids each, right? Like, it is very rare that, now it doesn't mean we both talk to them. It could just be a text or it could be whatever, which we think is so great. Like, how lucky is that? These kids, three of the kids are now in New York. And so, yeah, we cared a lot about that. I remember you and I, I mean, we bumped into this great guy who we tried to hire named Ken Hirschman. And Ken was the best, and we loved him. And he was like, oh, my God, you guys are singing Disney songs. And, like, (laughs) I think he totally understood, like, oh, this is how you think about family the same way I do. We never quite managed to convince him to join us. But I did end up working with him. I don't know if you know this, but he ended up being the general counsel and the head of corporate and business development at Ebates, one of the portfolio companies that we worked with. With KJ. And uh, yeah, with with Kevin Johnson, who is one of our venture partners. It all comes together, I'm telling you. And Ken's kids went to school with my kids. It was just awesome. And so- I really thought that was a draw. I felt like it was important to say, your job is important and we want you to love it and we want you to give it 110%, but it's not your entire life. Yeah. We want you to have It doesn't have to be at the cost of your family. Yeah. Now my family would say, oh, get a grip. (laughs) (laughs) Man, did you work a lot at that time. Which reminds me of the early morning call Julie received because the phone was always on her side of the bed. You and I had been working on the sale of when.com. We had been pulling, I don't know, three all-nighters in a row. And and I I think at one or two o'clock in the morning, we decided of the last night, the night that sort of everything finally came together, that we would go home and get a few hours of sleep before we returned back to the sort of office and finalized whatever we needed to finalize. And I remember I drove home and I sort of snuck into the house and I climbed into bed and I sort of went to sleep. And the next thing I knew, the phone was ringing and Julie sort of, you know, rolls over and answers it. And I hear her voice saying, hello. And no, let me ask buddy. And it was Pamela calling and she didn't know where David was. Where's David? Weren't you guys together? And this was pre cell phone. So we couldn't call you on a cell phone or track you on the, and I said, I don't know. We, we left at about one, two o'clock in the morning. We were just going to drive home. Oh my God. It's, you know, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. I think we have to meet back at the office at eight. So I don't know where he is. And then I think it was 20 minutes later, Pamela sort of calls back and says, I found him. He was asleep in the garage. <laughs> Well, I came home, it was like two in the morning and she had locked the door between the garage and the kitchen. And I was like, I don't want to wake up the kids. That'd be horrible. And I was so tired. So I just went to sleep in the car and I don't know what made her open the door to the garage. I think she was probably checking to see if the car was there. And when she opened the door to see if the car was there and saw me asleep, she banged on the window of the car. Like, what are you doing? You idiot. I was like, oh my God, I just wanted to sleep, which gives you a sense of how bad it was at that point. She was so annoyed at at both of us. All right, let's, let's scoot it forward a little bit. So, you know, we're at Perkins, we worked our tails off, we did a lot, we grew the team from, you know, zero to 35 lawyers in a matter of a year and a half or two years. Our wives thought you and I were having an affair. We were, we were together way more than we were with them, but it was fun. And then there was that memorable day that that day that you approached me and said, Hi, buddy. Sorry about this. I got good news for me and bad news for you. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what I said? That would be mean. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't know which one I want to hear first. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the day that you announced you were going to leave the law, leave Perkins Coie, abandon your 
friend, buddy, and become a vulture capitalist at August Capital, yeah. which was an amazing career move for you and one that I certainly applauded and continue to applaud. So the question in this is, at what point did you think to yourself, you know, the law is super interesting, but I want to do something different. What was the catalyst for that? Well, you and I had the same life, right? We were working with startups and working with startups is amazing. And the nice thing about being a good lawyer who's a trusted lawyer is that you get to be more and more engaged and involved in the business of your clients. But the more involved you get in the business of the clients, the more involved you want to be in the business of the clients, right? I think there are those who are legally minded who have none of that get involved and say, oh, that's not my business. What I'm interested in is how do I create a great contract for you? You know, But I think you and I shared this sense of, oh, there's incredible camaraderie in these teams. It's about building something new and exciting. And so the more that I was working with startups, the more I was convinced I need to find an opportunity to work more closely with these incredible people. So I would work really hard to make sure that I was giving them everything they needed. And they would then include me more in their business. And I would be at their offices and I would help them with deals and I would help them hire people and all these things that you and I have done forever that isn't actually in the job description. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not like if you said, oh, what do you do as outside counsel to a startup? They, you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, you interview VPs of marketing candidates. But, you know, but that's the kind of thing that you and I were doing for our companies because it was valuable to them and we wanted to be part of a team and we wanted to be helpful. And so watching from the outside, it seemed to me the venture capital thing was the best of all worlds because I could invest in a bunch of companies. I could keep working with lots of different businesses the way I was as a lawyer. But instead of having to draft contracts at night, I would sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that turned out not to be true either. Not true. Uh, as you now know. you know, Just not drafting. <laughs> they're doing other stuff. But anyway, I just thought like the business of the business was so exciting that I couldn't wait to be part of it. So when Dave Marcourt, who founded August Capital, said, have you ever thought about the venture business? I was like, oh, yeah, of course, I've thought about it. And then it took me four months to convince the partners that even though my expertise up until that point was allegedly being a lawyer, that the things I always had done for my companies was more akin to being a venture capitalist. Yeah. And the thing that has been great you know, reuniting with you is I always knew that that's how you treated it. Like we came into the business together saying – hey, we have to be equity holders. We have to have the ability to be part of this experience and part of this ride. And then we want to create value for the larger company. And we also want to benefit from that value that's helped it created. You did it a lot longer from the inside than I did. But by the time August spoke with me and said, listen, it's not clear that you'll be a good venture capitalist. <laughs> They're like, we like you. You have a lot of characteristics, but who knows? But we do like you and we're willing to give it a shot and we're willing to risk it. And to my mind, that was like the biggest no-brainer in the history of time. Right. Give and me the shot. Give me the shot on goal. And it was interesting. And when I told you, then I went and talked to the senior people and the person who was running the Bay Area practice at the time tried to convince me to stick around. He was like, oh, David, I wasn't even a partner. And they're like, oh, we'll make you a partner today and we'll do this and we'll do that, whatever. And I said, yeah, no, that's okay. And he said, well, what would it take to keep you around? And I said, Nothing. I'm gone. Nothing. Yeah. You can't, because the thing that I can go do is not a thing you can let me do here. Yeah. You know, it's funny, having seen a bunch of people leave, I think the most respectful thing you can do to a great colleague that is leaving is to wish them good luck. 
and not give them the, what can I do to keep you? Because the best employees, the best sort of colleagues, they don't threaten to leave. They make their decision and they sort of do what's right for themselves and they go. And that idea of what can I do to keep you is sort of like, hey, the decision's now made. If you respect me, let me go with my decision. Well, the other thing, and I'll tell you, Cravath understands this 100%. Now, partially it's because they bring in a class of, you know, 50, 60, 80 associates and they'll only make a few of them partner. So the vast majority of people will leave, but they think of people who have been there before as alumni, right? Yep. In the same way that you're a you know Penn alum, you're a Cravath alum. And I just think that's just way smarter. And if I think of the alumni that we had from that class when we were building this practice, right? We had Sean Pack, who's gone on to be an incredible litigator. We had Carl Sun, who now runs Lucid and is the CEO of a giant, incredible company who's just went Google before that, right? You and I are now in this venture world and we constantly are referring people to Perkins Coie. We know how amazing those lawyers are. So why do anything but say, oh, I can't Lime believe how great it is. Let us know how we can be helpful to you, right? Exactly. That's what Cravath does. It's like, awesome. Let us know when we can be of service, you know? It's good business and it's the right way to approach people. Hey, on the venture side, I love hearing this story and I want to get this recorded. Talk about your first investments there, right? So tell us what they are and how they perform, but get us inside the mind of David Hornick. So you're new to the venture world. You've got these very accomplished venture capital partners sort of that just hired you. They're giving you an opportunity, but they're not 100% convinced. <laughs> Talk about your first deals and how you looked at them and what you were yeah, thinking. Yeah, I mean, and- it was crazy. I have to say, I thought I understood the venture business because I had seen venture capitalists. I'd seen them do deals because I'd help with the law and I'd seen them in board meetings because I'd sat in in board meetings. So I'm like, oh, I know what it means to be a venture capitalist. Then you get there and you're like, what? Oh my God. (laughs) Like just a number of things that you have to do that you had no idea. You have to convince people to tell you about what they're working on and you have to figure out if it's interesting and you have to make choices about whether it's interesting. Then you have to convince them to take your money and then you have to negotiate the terms, which on the one hand we did a lot of, right? I mean, how many billions of dollars in private equity financings did you do? Like billions, right? So of course we know what the terms are, But it turns out that's not what it's about. I mean, Buddy and I were just going through this. Both of us were trying to negotiate deals on our own as lobby capital in the last week or two. And it's just very telling. And they were very different deals and they were very different terms. And didn't matter how many private equity financings you had been the lawyer on, it doesn't train you for what are good choices and what am I willing to do and how can I trust people and learn about them in the process and all that. I think that's the most insightful thing, which is, it's not about the terms. It's about what are they revealing about themselves, their mindsets, their personalities, you know, how collaborative they are in the negotiation with you. Um, yeah. So anyway, I just knew nothing. And it was a bunch of technology that I didn't really know anything about either. And that was interesting. So I have this partnership. I was the fifth to join. There were four illustrious folks. You know, Dave Marquardt was the only private investor in Microsoft. He sat on that board for 33 years. He was the first investor in Seagate and Sun and Compact. His co-founder, a guy named John Johnston, had been the first investor in Intuit and Sybase. And Andy Rappaport, who came and joined them next, was a chip investor who was 
was considered one of the smartest people in the chip business. Andrew Anker, who joined after that, had been the founder of Wired Digital. So he'd helped to invent the banner advertisement. So these were amazing people. And I showed up and I remember after the very first meeting, I went home and I said to Pamela, like, oh, this is not good. (laughs) We just talked about all sorts of things and I don't know anything about any of them. She's like, what are you talking about? Like, oh my God, we talked about chips and storage and blah, blah. It's like, I'm way over my head here. And she's like, it is too late, my friend. (laughs) Suck it up. Go learn Learn some things. Go Go learn learn some things. (laughs) But luckily they were in no rush. They said, take your time. Don't feel any pressure to do a deal. Deals come when they come. Meet with companies. I remember the very first deal I put in front of the whole partnership. It was this telephony company that was doing drops, ads, and changes. So when you were in an office, if you change desks, how do you manage where the phone line is and the computer and all this stuff? A real business. It ended up getting funded by someone else, but I put it in front of the full partnership and it's like, okay, this is it. I think this is a real business. I'm excited. We hear the pitch and then we go into Dave Marquardt's office. We're all standing around, the five of us, and there's like this tension like silence. <laughs> and uh, and finally, Andy Rappaport says to me, so could you wake up and be excited about that business? Could you wake up and be excited about working with that team? And I said, I think it's a very interesting market. I think it's this. I think that he said, no, no, I asked you a very specific question. Would you wake up and be excited to work on this particular company with these particular group of people? And I said, is that a criteria? And he said, of course it is. It's the criteria. And I yeah. said, well, no. <laughs> and they're like, okay. Then they all like, oh, thank God. And that, was like, <laughs> and that was the end of that deal, right? But the first one that I got very serious about, and this is the thing about the business is like this long-term business and it's very relationship-driven, was a company called Popular Power. And there were these two great smart founders, and they were trying to create this idea of using distributed processing. It was so early for this, but it was based on the project SETI at home, where you were looking Mm -hmm. for extraterrestrial life by using the computational power of your computers when you weren't using them at home. And so these guys were building a commercial grid on top of it called Popular Power. And there were two founders, and I really liked them both, a guy named Mark Hedlund, a guy named Nelson Miner. I spent a bunch of time with them. They were negotiating. I brought them in front of the partnership. We're like, yeah, we kind of get it. And we came very close and they came very close and they thought about a term sheet and then Sequoia, I think, was giving. Anyway, it never really worked out. I didn't do the deal. They didn't end up getting funding. Nelson went off and joined Google as a very early Google engineer. It wound up being really a phenomenally great experience for him. Mark has done amazing stuff. I think he was, at one point, he was the head of engineering for Stripe and done other things. And I've stayed close. I think they're really lovely people. I've enjoyed watching the advent of their careers. And I didn't do the deal, you know. But the very first deal I did do was a company called PayCycle. And it was the first online payroll company. And it was before anyone was talking about SaaS, but it was the very first, you know, small business SaaS product ever invented. And it was payroll for small business. It was started by this guy, Rene Lassert, who had been running payroll at Intuit, and he wanted to build this at Intuit, and they didn't want to build it, and so he left. And because my partner, John, had 
been an investor into it. He knew Eric Dunn and Susan Dunn. Eric had been an investor and been part of the company. He had been an investor in PayCycle. He was part of the Intuit story. Susan, his wife, was this incredible attorney who had clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor, was a force at Fenwick and West. And she left Fenwick and West to join this company. So I met with them and I loved Renee. He was this very earnest, very lovely, smart person. I thought that what they were doing was interesting. And ultimately, the partnership agreed. And I think they mostly agreed because they thought I couldn't do too much harm. They're like, (laughs) it can't go too badly. They can't raise too much money. It'll be fine or whatever. And finally, I ultimately gave Renee a term sheet. I remember when I gave him a term sheet, I said, because it had been originally introduced to, to my partner, John, but I had been doing all the work. So I said to him, how are you thinking about the board seat? Because I was worried that he was going to say, oh, I want to have John, who has been on the board of Intuit, you know, take the board seat. And he said, well, I I certainly hope that you're the board member. And I was like, what? Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) I was so happy. And he was (laughs) like, oh, I don't want John. I don't have a relationship with John. So Renee and I have now worked together for 21 years, like, because PayCycle ultimately got sold and he then started Bill.com Back to Intuit, and then, right? yeah, sold it to Intuit because yeah. yep. and it's big now. It's a very big business. Great then business. he started Bill.com and we said, yeah, let's fund Bill.com. And I've been with him for more than a decade of Bill.com. And, you know, the fact that that's now a $20 billion public company and just so good doing amazing stuff. So Renee then, through his lawyer, introduced me to my next most interesting deal. His lawyer, another partner at Fenwick & West, a guy named Mike Patrick, and I became friendly because, and Buddy and I know this, like there's a temptation when you get into the boardroom to talk to the founders, to talk to whatever, but not to talk to the lawyers. But when you've been a lawyer... Then you talk to the lawyers because they're like, you were that lawyer. So It's amazing how much they know, too. Those. Oh, my God. They know everything. So I chat with Mike. And anyway, Mike introduced me to these three guys who are working on a thing. He's like, I don't really know what it is they're building, but I like them. And I think they'll be a good fit for you. And anyway, long story short, they ultimately said, we're going to build a search engine for log files. And I thought that was super interesting and convinced my partners that that was an interesting idea. And we basically seed funded it, but a big seed round and was the first investor in that company ultimately changed its name to Splunk. And it was the poster child for big data when it became a public company in 2011, right? So seven years after I made the first investment. So those two obviously were I was just lucky I touched really smart entrepreneurs. And then because I worked on Splunk, I got to know Eric Swan, who's just a force. And Eric works with me on two other things. He had seed funded a company called Brilliant, which we're an investor in. And then he had funded this company that's now called Fletch that he and I are both on the board of. And so it's such a tangled web of amazing, smart people. And you just have to hope that you get, you know, like grab hold and you know, grab on tight, like, take me with you. (laughs) (laughs) Along that path, then you're a young venture capitalist, you're sort of looking at deals, you're meeting people, you're trying to understand, you're going to conferences, right? So to get smart about technology, and all of a sudden you realize at these conferences that, yeah, you learn some stuff, but really the value seems to be the people that are there. And how do you get to know those people better? How do you sort of get that network to be vibrant and you know, less of a chore to build and more of a joy to build? And along comes this idea. Talk us through sort of the origin of what has become an amazing ecosystem, the lobby conferences. Well, it really was the byproduct of a lot of different conferences, right? I owe 
a debt of gratitude to a bunch of different people who were building events that had different characteristics, right? By the way, and on that, I'm going to interrupt you for a quick sec, because on that one, talking about people and sort of the serendipity of what relationships can bring to you. When we were back at Perkins Coie in Menlo Park, we had a big office that had not yet been filled. And one of the people that we subletted some space to was a guy named Chris Anderson. Mm Mm-hmm. And Chris Anderson had just acquired or somehow assumed the assets of this small sort of niche conference, but very sort of passionately attended conference called TED. And so we had the good fortune of seeing Chris in the early days sort of define the sort of evolution of where he thought he could bring TED. And lo and behold, TED has sort of become what it is today. Was that part of the influence on the lobby? Was that one of the factors? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Chris became a friend and I was involved early. Chris Anderson was like an amazing force. He had built this magazine empire and he bought the TED conference when it was this little thing. I mean, the TED conference, when Chris bought it, was a gathering in Monterey. It was you know, a few hundred people. It was nobody'd heard of it, but he was intrigued by it. And when I joined August, the first thing that Andrew Anker said to me is, you're going to come with me to the TED conference. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, oh, my God, you're going to love it. It's amazing. So I went off in 2000 to my first TED conference, and it was amazing. Like just the people who were presenting and the conversations. For someone who was a computer music major and a political science junkie and a technology person, all these things – I just couldn't have liked it more. And I started helping introduce speakers. And this guy, Tom Riley, who is one of my favorite people on the planet, would do this comedy wrap-up at the end of the conference. And eventually, I got to join his team writing the comedy wrap-up with a guy named John Boyden, who's become one of my dear friends and also comes to the lobby conference. And over the years, I tried to be as helpful as I could to Chris about the conference, putting aside the influence it had on my lobby conference. One day I got a call from Chris and he said, hey, David, you know, I've been thinking about TED. And one of the challenges, even though TED stands for technology, we haven't had the best eye on technology. And I think we need a tech curator for TED. And I said, oh, I think that's 100% right. It would be great to have a resource. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you think that because I'm going to make you the tech curator. I said, well, (laughs) is this a full-time job? Like, I have a job and I like the job. He's like, no, no, I just want you to like vet some things and help us. And so we put some stuff on the stage. I was like, how many? He's oh, if you could find five or six, you know, speakers, like, holy cow. But so for two years, I think I was the tech curator for TED. And it was an incredible position to be in. I got to see unbelievable stuff, but it was definitely a full-time job. I mean, I was flying to Seattle and to Florida and to whatever to look at stuff. But the byproduct is I found this incredible technology. I was super excited about these professors down at USC who are using artificial intelligence to think about sports data. And they had started a company called Second Spectrum. And I met with the founders to talk with them about TED And the more I dug into it, the more I liked them. I just thought they were amazing. It was a guy named Rajiv Maheswaran and a guy named Yuhan, who was his co-founder. And they were these brilliant, brilliant scientists who were building this incredibly cool thing. So I put Rajiv on stage as the tech curator. And shortly before the conference, I said, hey, I'd love to talk to you about whether you are looking for investment. And this was the moment when I knew that Rajiv was someone I wanted to back because he said, let's talk about it after the conference which was exactly the right answer, but it cost me a lot of money because 
after he presented the conference, all sorts of people wanted to fund him and I had to fight uh, tooth right. and nail to fund the company. So it's just one of those things. You never know where you're going to encounter amazing people and what they're going to be working on. And that company got sold to a company called Genius, which is a great, interesting sports data company. Okay, back to the conference. So I was going to these but conferences. thread on people. I mean, again, it's all about the people. And it's always sort of interesting to try to decipher what is it about the people? What motivates them? Where do they come from? How do they have that perspective? Where are they going to take that perspective? How are they motivated? It's all about that fabric of the people. To your point about building relationships, like I've been to the TED conference since that year. So 2000, this is 2000. So 22 years I've been going to the TED conference mm. and uh, have never missed one. And there are a group of friends of mine that I see at TED that I don't necessarily see at other places who are just an incredible group of folks and they're building interesting stuff and they're working on great stuff. And it's my opportunity to catch up with this crew who I otherwise wouldn't see. I actually don't go in and hear talks much because I can watch the video, but I can't chat with this group of people when I finally started my lobby conference, which was my response to all of these conferences, because I decided that all of the most interesting conversations I had at all of these events was in the lobby, because like, that's where I'd talk to people. I didn't go in a dark room and listen to speakers. I wanted to talk to people. When I went in the dark room, I'd whisper to the person next to me, and people would be annoyed at me. So I created the lobby conference as a nod to all of these great conferences. I invited the conference organizers to my very first conference. So I invited mm. Kara Swisher, who had started All Things Digital, and she actually came to the first one. I invited Chris Anderson and some of the other folks from TED. I invited Tim O'Reilly, who had Tim these amazing yeah. conferences. The O'Reilly conferences were everything. They were all sorts of technology, but he also had a thing called Foo Camp. And Foo Camp was this gathering of Foo, which was Friends of O'Reilly. And it was an unconference. He People literally <laughs> camped out in his campus in Sebastopol and then had this unconference. You've never seen a more amazing group of people than was at Foo Camp. <laughs> One year, I forget whether it was Larry or Sergey, literally landed a helicopter in, in the apple field to come hang out. Bezos came to early Foo Camps, etc. So I invited Chris Shipley, who was running the demo conference, yeah. to come. Like I wanted them all to know that I wasn't trying to be what they were. I wanted them to know that they had influenced this thing. But the thing that they had influenced, the lobby was, I thought of as, you know, this experiential theater. <laughs> you know, it was this opportunity to gather the most interesting folks who would be speakers at any other conference to come together, no speakers, no panels, just sit around and talk about the stuff that was important to mm -hmm. you and to your friends at the lobby have great dinners and parties where you could engage in ways about things like you and I have always engaged in, which is not just talk about how you're building this incredible company, LinkedIn or Zynga or whatever, but who you are, like what inspired you. Reid Hoffman and I have become incredibly good friends for many years because we built a real relationship around thinking about the planet and about games and whatever, right? And mm -hmm. so- I've made wonderful friends. I've brought incredible colleagues to this conference. We bring co-investors to the conference. We bring people we're excited about working with. And it's really worked. The result of it is that everybody gets a bunch of value out of it, not just us, because that wouldn't work. And they're really thankful that they had had the opportunity to be part of that conversation. So Lobby is about 250 people. Right. 
So you've been doing it for 14 years, invite only. It sells out, you know, within minutes of the time David publishes the date. But the first one was 150 people. Yes. And um, at the time, there were no billionaires in attendance, right? There was no sort of wildly successful entrepreneurs. There was 150 really, really brilliant people from all different backgrounds and all different sort of orientations. And yet you spin the clock forward to today. And it's amazing. It's almost 10%. Almost 10% of that original crew are billionaires. And even more important, think of the impact that those 150 people have had on, you know, not just the technology marketplace, but sort of our daily lives. Yeah, no, I mean, look at Ev Williams was there before he started Twitter. He had done Blogger and uh, Reed Hoffman was there as he was getting started with LinkedIn and Mark Pincus was there as he was starting uh, Zynga and Travis and Garrett, who ultimately founded Uber, were there at that early time and met and got to know each other. Drew Houston in the early days of Dropbox was there. And then in the venture world, Josh Koppelman was there as he was thinking about creating the first seed venture fund, right? First round capital. And Dan Rose, who was the number three or something person at Facebook was there, as was Ethan Beard, who was running Facebook platform, as was Dick Costolo, who was running a different company called FeedBurner, which he sold to Google before he went on to run Twitter. And the list goes on. Like It was just such a smart group of people, but also such a nice group of people. Matt Mullenweg, as he was starting you know, Automatic, which is now powering so much of the web. I mean, you know, I just think these are my closest friends, but also they're also our closest colleagues. They're lovely people. And we ended up going from having this initial group, which was always only thinking about consumer-facing businesses, to then creating a second event called Lobby Enterprise to find the people who were doing the same thing or generous and thoughtful and wanted to create the future of business-to-business technology. And that conference ended up being with the early people there were the founders of Atlassian and Datadog and Elastic and Fastly and all these amazing businesses, right? And so the biggest challenge for the lobby is just to make sure that you're always bringing great new people on. It's only as good as the amazing people who come. And it can't be the same people every year, even though everybody wants to come back. And so it's this tricky tension of, Who's creating that next great thing? Because we want them to come. And that means that some of us can't come back at least this year, because if it got too big, it would be less interesting. Yeah, that is, you know, the challenge that you're facing now is how to, you know, both sort of keep the folks who have attended active in the community, the lobby conference community, but also then sort of bringing in sort of the new faces and the new ideas and the new businesses Spin the clock forward five or 10 years, if you can, for a sec. You know, what's the vision for where Lobby Conference goes? Does it become larger? Is it sort of like TED, where you have it in multiple jurisdictions? Or is it just fluid and and you'll take it one day at a time? How do you think about the future? It's been around for 16 years. There is a structure to it, but every conference is different. So to to a Mm -hmm. certain degree... It reinvents itself every year. The structure doesn't reinvent itself. It has a certain arc. But at the end of the day, it's a new group of people. There are new things we're talking about. You know, there are always themes that entertain me to make the parties fun. And to date, people have not said, eh, I don't get it. In fact, we, we had the lobby recently after a year and a half hiatus 
and got the highest NPS score we ever had. It was nearly a 90 NPS. That was such a gratifying moment because it was like, it had been a lot of work to try and manage this thing through COVID. We had to create daily testing and we had to create all sorts of stuff to make it happen. But people were so grateful to be back together and bunch of great stuff happened and came out of it. Thing that happens is people meet other people and they fund companies and they buy companies and they hire people and they are inspired to change the planet. So I don't know that there'll be any big shift. Although this year we have a thing we've never done before, which I'm calling Lobby Together. And it's the first time we've ever brought the consumer and the enterprise people together to say, hey, you're more similar than you are different. And let's see what that's like. If people love it, then I suspect we're up to three lobby conferences because I think there are still people who want enterprise. There's still people who want consumer, but there'll be people like, oh, that lobby together thing was the really compelling one. And I don't know when I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where you uh, fit another lobby not enough conference. enough time on that 365 day calendar. Oh my goodness. No, it is truly remarkable. And thank you. I, I, you know, personally, thank you for sort of creating it and uh, letting us, you know, build our new fund and new firm around, uh, around that ecosystem. It's just phenomenally rewarding. All right. One last topic, and that is art. Let's talk art. Oh, good. So for those that don't know, David and his wife, Pamela, have been collecting can I consider it modern art by underrepresented artists? Is that a well, fair some characterization? Of it. It's some uh, of it. We would say, by and large, our collection is contemporary figurative art. Okay. And okay. it just turns out that the stuff we find compelling is broader than the historical interest of the art world. <laughs> yeah. Although that's shifting very rapidly. So we have lots and lots of art of folks who have been historically underrepresented, artists of color, LGBTQ artists. And some of what we find compelling about the art they make is that it reflects who they are, right? Yeah. We just bought this incredible piece of art, this sort of revelatory piece of art that is by a a trans artist who actually lost his arm in an accident while in art school. And this piece of art is really about that. I think that we're not trying to make a statement. We're not trying to do anything other than buy art that we love and we think is exciting and compelling. And then the most exciting thing we could possibly do is to give that art to museums or loan that art to museums so that more people than just the people who wander through our house can see it. Can enjoy it. And, you know, it's funny. I think I've shared this with you. My father-in-law, when he was alive, was an artist. In my upbringing, very little appreciation for the arts in the Arnheim household. And so when Julie and I were first dating, by the way, that was when we were 16, but (laughs) I would go over to her house as a polite young man and sort of knock on the door and, of course, have to sort of sit and talk with the parents before I would take her to the movies or whatever we were doing. And he had his artwork all over their house. They had this very modern house that overhung a ravine and he would cover all the windows with (laughs) his large canvases. And I would sit and and because I was so ignorant about art, I would look at them and they were pretty. I would say, oh, that's really pretty. I love the colors. I love the flow. Oh, that looks exactly like... And then Julie would come to my rescue and say, you know, you can kind of feel the fig- you know, the, the mood of this whatever. And she would sort of explain the art to me, you, know, you simpleton, can't you see? <laughs> but it's interesting as we've gotten older and Julie certainly is more interested and in, in sort of pays more attention to the art world. There is a lot of messaging and a lot of sort of emotion and a lot of knowledge that gets sort of portrayed in art. And everybody has a different perspective, right? My tastes and my interests are different. But you and Pamela 
seem to have a very aligned area of interest or sort of very aligned passion around the art that you're collecting. How did that happen? Was it Pamela and you're, you're a good soul and, and you're a good husband that supported her? No, it really isn't. In every instance when it's like, oh, I shouldn't have an opinion on this. I always have an opinion. We just got lucky and it turns out that we really like the same things. But it is sort of stunning how much we like the same things. If we go to a show and you say, what's your favorite piece in the room? 97% of the time, we will pick the exact same piece. Now, maybe that's that we've been surrounded by the same art Maybe, but mostly I think it's just we have the same aesthetic, like the stuff that is exciting to us is the same, right? In the end, I think if you look around and you see the stuff that we live with, it's very joyful, it's very bright, and frankly, buddy, I enjoy it the way you just described we're not intellectuals. We're not saying, oh, this is an incredible representation of the blah. We're saying, oh my goodness, the strength of this character. I, I always talk about the empathy. You can see the empathy in the artist, whether it's themselves or some person who they feel isn't well represented in history or whatever. You look and go, oh my God, I'm so glad that that person is getting a voice. And that's what excites us. And that's been an amazing journey. We've been very, very, very lucky to get to know artists. I mean, in some ways, one of the things that I've done over time, right? One of the things that you've seen, buddy, is that my life has all become kind of venture capital, right? So we look and meet emerging artists who are doing great stuff and we buy art from them when nobody cares about their, has heard about them. And maybe they become interesting, maybe they don't, that's fine. I invest in Broadway shows because I think they should be made. I want this art to be made. You know, there's an amazing yes. show that's about to open called A Strange Loop on Broadway. I'm investing in the show and helping to produce it because it's a great show and people should love it. Will it make money? Probably not. But, you know, the same was true of Hadestown. Would, would it be great? Yes. But would people love it? Turns out, yes. So yes. I kind of, everything I do is try to give, to engage with amazing people who are building something that can be transformative early and be a part of that journey because that's the fun stuff. And sometimes it turns out to be great and amazing and you can all celebrate and sometimes it doesn't work and you say, that's fine. It was worthwhile, right? Let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, at some point we'll do a podcast on, you know, venture capital is everything, right? It's sort of portfolio theory of life. You know, you try things, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but you got to try. You got to push it forward if it's interesting. Yeah. Well, David, that was a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for uh, filling in the blanks that I had along the way. I uh, could continue this conversation for hours, but I know we both have emails that are piling up and phone calls that are sort of waiting to be returned. So thank you again. And, um, I look forward to our next conversation. Always fun. This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation. 